Welcome to Classic Comics Cavalcade. I'm Jason Sachs. And I'm Eric Hoffman. And we are talking about Grendel Tales Omnibus Volume 4, which includes four stories, Homecoming by Pat McCone and Dave Cooper, Devil's Choices by Darko Makan and Edwin Bukovich, Devil May Care by Terry LeBan and Peter Doherty, and Devil's Apprentice by Jeffrey Lang and Steve Lieber. So if there's one takeaway about living in the Grendel universe, it's uh, don't ever form a romantic relationship or even have kids because it's going to end in tragedy. That does seem to be a, a common theme, especially in this group of stories. How many boyfriends and husbands and children get killed in the as like revenge or hatred in these stories? Wow. Like it's it is true. a clear theme. It, it is, uh, yeah, you're right. Going all the way back to, uh, to I guess you could include Stacy Palumbo in that, but Brian Lee Sung definitely, and let's see, uh, Captain Wiggins stabs his wife in the eye, and the sisters of uh, Asante or uh, Orion, uh, they die tragically. Yeah, you're right. It one storyline after the other. It seems to be having any kind of romantic or familial attachments even uh is is destined for tragedy. <laughs> it's so interesting seeing this come up over and over again. Right? Cuz one of these are all by different creators who are probably didn't talk to each other much since these are the pre-internet days. It's not like they were on message boards together. You know, they may have traded emails or something, but these are all ideas everyone came up with separately, it seems. And yet, like, they all came to the same ideas. And by the end, I found myself kind of numbed by it, you know, basically just expecting the tragedy in, in Devil's Apprentice to happen because it was inevitable. That I mean, some stories are more inevitable than others, like, Devil May Care, it's pretty obvious that the Romeo-Juliet romance is going to end in tragedy. Right. But, like, I was honestly pulling for Susan in Homecoming. I was really hoping she could find happiness. Yeah, but you knew she wouldn't, right? Because this is sandwiched between War Child and Past Prime, where she's sort of this, in Past Prime, she's this hardened you know, soldier type. And uh, I thought that this first story, if you want to jump right into it, this is the first story in in the second omnibus of Grendel Tales, um, uh, which is called Homecoming, uh, that uh, Susan is, I, th I thought this did a wonderful job of further, you know, um, illustrating Susan's character development. Uh, and her arc um, in a really interesting way. You know, I don't think it resolves itself all that well. Its its conclusion is rather uh, anticlimactic, to say the least. Nevertheless, it's a little three-issue story. It's very tight, tightly um, plotted. Each chapter, you know, it has essentially a three-act structure. The artwork by, again, by Patrick uh, Pat McCone, who, who uh, illustrated War Child, and 
whose work on Warchild we both admired greatly is here. He did the pencils and then the artwork was painted uh, over by Dave Cooper, of all people. And this is one of the few, I guess, non-fantagraphics or non-drawn and quarterly comics of his, you know, sort of a more mainstream comic. Dave Cooper's known for sort of being in the, I guess, the Jim Woodring school, you know, of comic art. Very, very much an indie artist who is known for uh, very experimental um, storylines. All right, not storylines, but experimental graphic novels. And here he's doing a Grendel comic, and it's really beautiful artwork. I mean, the McCohen pencils, and I, I, I know Cooper's work, so there's really more Cooper than McCohen here on the page. He really, I think, probably took a lot of liberties with how he completed the artwork here. But uh, nevertheless, McCohen's artwork is apparent i mean his you know so much of it is dependent on the character's facial expressions uh, which he's incredible at i think we mentioned that before when we were talking about war child he's extremely good at depicting people's emotions on their faces and also creating a a very rich world i mean all of the backgrounds are more or less completed i think a lot of it was he didn't put in the backgrounds and Cooper finished the backgrounds because a lot of the artwork that's in the backgrounds looks like a Dave Cooper comic. It does, yeah. And nevertheless, it's still richly imagined, gorgeous artwork that we've come to expect from Grendel Comics. The the writing is by Pat McCohen, which I thought was interesting. And it has it says additional dialogue by Matt Wagner. So a rare instance of Matt Wagner being creatively involved beyond just doing the covers for the comic. Um, and it does, I, I think Matt Wagner probably wrote the bulk of this. It seems like a Matt Wagner comic to me. Uh, the dialogue is extremely reminiscent of his dialogue. The way it's structured is extremely reminiscent of a Matt Wagner comic. Um, the way that he structure of his comics is uh you know it you know you i think of mage for example and how that's essentially a three-part structure overall and then within each of the mage comics there's a sort of a three-act structure within each mini series there are 15 issues each roughly five issues per act within those comics and it just seemed like this has got matt wagner written all over it you know that he was heavily involved in in writing this one. So I thought that was kind of interesting and made it stand apart. The the relationship between Susan and her love interest, who's a friend of hers that she knew, you know, before the shit hit the fan, as it were, when they were younger. And, you know, she's returned to her home and her home has been utterly transformed, of course, by the Grendel forces or or that there's this local Grendel chieftain who's made a mess of things and who's taking advantage of her friend they were friends originally and they become love interests in this story and you know she's given some some really i mean it's it's they don't go into too much detail but it's so succinct how they how 
it is done, how her backstory is presented. Susan's, we don't get much of her backstory in War Child. We get a little bit of it in Past Prime, and we get a little bit more of it here. And it doesn't take away, in my opinion, from her story. It really does add to it. And and I I really came away really liking this one. Again, the only problem I really had with it is the ending, which it didn't really do anything for me. This, this okay, uh, I think you know, I'd like. I think I like the ending better than you did, and let's get to that in a bit. Um, I thought it was just the right amount of background to give this story its real poignancy. Uh, There was just enough. uh, A lot of the stuff that we got from War Child that was kind of hinted at here, that having come from reading War Child a month ago or so, really kind of illuminated the character even more. Who Susan is, how she reacted to the world around her, who, who was around her then, the claustrophobia she was stuck in then, but also this kind of weird nostalgia for the claustrophobic time that she feels, uh, which I think all of us can feel in some way. You know, this this comfort for being around someone who knew you when you weren't the person you became, who right. knew you was the person who you were becoming. And that's just a very special bond. And you can see that in the immediate intimacy the two of them have together in book two, where they're literally and figuratively naked with each other in a way that you can't be if you're just meeting someone for the first time. There's a level of comfort and happiness and pleasure being together that is really special. And so, um, okay, there'll be spoilers here. The fact that that she dies is made more tragic to me. Now, yeah, we knew it was going to happen, certainly. But I found myself just pulling for them so much. I also thought that the way Wagner and McGowan, we can debate how much that's divided up, deal with the previous relationship between the two, this kind of denial of her sexuality or identity and then later embrace of it just really kind of shows how far this character has come and how much she has already grown so that was also part of what made it so poignant is that i felt like she was uh, susan was more or less at peace with who she had become and was ready to move to the next phase of her life you know that this romance feels very and we'll talk about this in in uh, the Terry LeBan story. This this romance feels earned in a way that I'm not sure the other romances in this book are earned, because these are characters who have a clear connection, who've both really changed in ways that have deeply changed their lives. Yeah, and I, I think what's interesting about that is it's Susan almost seems to acknowledge that what was important before you know society collapsed essentially and her life was utterly transformed by the events that she got swept up into uh they don't really matter anymore and in a way that's it's kind of liberating right like she doesn't there's nobody she needs to impress there's nobody left over that she needs to hide herself from Mm -hmm. she can finally be who she is who she was the entire time but now all these restrictions are taken away. That there's no expectations of her anymore. It's interesting that adversity or the 
tragedy can sometimes be beneficial in a way, in a way that we don't expect it to be. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And the vulnerability she shows, for example, on page 37 of the collection, where she just throws her, she just admits, I'm a loser. I was a asshole to you. I didn't need to be that. But we've seen Susan for a lot of comics and a lot of story. It's the first time we've really seen her vulnerable in this way, right? We saw her thrown into that solitary confinement and saw her nearly broken, but she wasn't challenged in this way. Uh, it's really nice to see this side of her and it shows the richness of this character. It's funny. I was open to that page, actually. Page 37. <laughs> I was looking right at it. I guess we see it a little bit in the poly relationship in War Child. But yeah. she seems to have some regrets about how that turned out. Some of which are her mistakes and some of which are the, the, the kind of strange relationship she found herself falling into. She kind of, you know, uh, the Gina Carano character in Mandalorian reminds me a bit of Susan in that she's this hardened woman, yet she still has this soft side, this this frag fragile side. That mm-hmm. She's afraid to show because she's afraid of exposing it and maybe losing it or having people take advantage of it or being damaged in some way by opening that side up. So the fact that she's able to do that in this comic i think it says a lot not only about her mental state but also about the intense feelings that she has for this woman from her past that she's allowed herself to be you know exposed like that yeah there's that is also a theme that runs through the first three stories in this collection probably not so much devil's apprentice which is the vulnerability that these seeming the, these warriors, these seemingly tough people, are willing to show when they're in an intimate relationship. And it's an interesting idea that ties together each of these. It ties together this collection in a surprising way. Yeah. So, tell me why I'm wrong about the ending. So, I thought the ending was very satisfying because. Okay, so this is this is so. First of all, Susan swears her vengeance, right, in a very nice, subtle way, which is she mourns the loss of her lover. She literally buries her, and we're told she disappears for two, three days, and then she takes an action, which is a simple action. I think anyone can relate to it, which is cutting her hair. By by cutting her hair, she's kind of saying to herself. I'm still the person I used to be, but I'm going to take this action to mourn it. Then she is tough, but she's angry, but she's controlled angry. She's got the vengeance, but when she goes to the vampire's area, whatever you want to call it, Buster's place, um, she's just ruthless and, and furious. But and she has that pitch battle where she fights all the other uh, Buster's minions. But I think what's interesting is that Buster does himself in. By right. sucking back all the pills and blowing up his head, he actually defeats himself. And right. 
I thought that was very satisfying because it's showing she doesn't always have to take action to have this to, to win. It also it shows that she can pull back, take take the minute, also grow a little bit. You know, you know, in the years I served the con, I must have killed dozens of people for no reason other than a sense of duty. They were obstacles, nothing more. I never felt a thing. Now, however, I have a very good reason. I'm going to cyber every moment. Prepare to die like the coward you are. And then he dies. She doesn't kill him. He dies. There's something very interesting about her previously being the killer, but holding back and allowing him to kill himself. Or seeing that he will kill himself. That I felt was very interesting about her character. The last line that she has there, there are no shortcuts, only patience and direction, survival and pain shows a level of growth and maturity that we haven't seen before. And then, the, then bookending the beginning and the end, in the beginning of the three-parter, she she comes into the town in her motorcycle thing with mask on, completely camouflaging who she is. In the end, she's wide open about who she is, which I think is both a symbolic and appropriate feeling for the moment. And really it's the, now... The the villain's head on the pike hanging from a bridge like Mussolini hung by his feet. Uh, I just felt like that was just a very satisfying way of wrapping up her story here, her arc here. Which is what Buster did to his victims. He had the, the, at the beginning, she's writing in the town. She sees this guy's hanging from the right. uh, electrical towers and the, you know, Dunce is hanging from one of the victims. And then she's put, bully around the neck of buster right and yeah yeah it's it's a great it's a great little story and and uh i don't know i'll, I'll have to read it again that, that ending again and see if if i don't agree with you yeah i mean i'm not always right about things <laughs> uh you're right by the way about dave cooper adding to the story you really see it in the last half dozen pages, especially the grotesqueness of the images, the level of detail in the coloring and the the smartness of the way it's colored. Yes, it's just really special. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Now, I know you love Devil's Choices, the, the Makan Bukovic story. Right. So this is the follow up to their previous Grendel tales that we spoke about last time. That was a two-parter. This is a four-parter. So a bit, bit longer dip into that world that they've created, which as we spoke about is a thinly veiled allegory for the Serbo uh, Serbian Croatian conflict that was taking place in the nineties, the early nineties probably at the same time that these comics were being created it deals with the same well it deals with two of the characters from that original story the younger brother of the main character and the boy the the son of the grendel khan who ended up killing his own father uh there's and then there's some other characters who are introduced 
uh, one of them is a most prominently is a defector from the, I guess they, their tribes. They're described as tribes. He's a defector from from the main character's tribe, and he's I guess gone over to the other tribe as a, a spy, and uh, he has a young wife who's. Uh, who's they have a young baby that it, she's pregnant at the beginning and then she delivers the baby so he's looking to be a father to change his life to no longer have to be you know caught up in this uh as a soldier um and to free himself of that uh and then the agram who is or agrami is it yeah agrami i guess Oh, okay. Gordon isn't a Grammy. Yes. I see. Sorry. He he's the younger brother and now he's all grown up and uh, he's kind of like following in the footsteps of his older brother who he idealized as a hero. And so he's, you know, become this soldier and a, a talented soldier. I think in some ways, this storyline isn't as satisfying as the first one that they did, which was, again, two-parter. It's about 48 pages, and we spoke about it at length last week. It was, you know, it's perfection. This is still a great comic. It's full of wonderful moments. I mean, the artwork, again, by Bakovich is extraordinary. Without getting into it again, it's, uh, I already expressed some of the joys to be found in his artwork it's really incredible what we have here is another anti-war tale this is this one seems to be a bit more morally ambiguous than the first two-parter where in that story there's a pretty clear line drawn between uh the evil characters you know especially a young boy for example um and then the heroic characters like the older brother who ends up taking on the monster and and ends up committing suicide because he can no longer you know deal with the pain of warfare and this one i think the characters are a bit more i i think the characters are are not so faded in this one uh, mm-hmm. they seem to be, there seems to be, a, a more hopeful breaking out from those rigid roles that we spoke about in the first story where everybody is sort of fated to this life. There's no escape from it. It's, war is all encompassing. And in this one, you start to see where the characters are moving outside of their roles. I mean probably most explicitly with that one character who has decided to defect and go to the other side. But even the general on the other side, whom he defects to, the one with the Grendel hat, you know, with the Grendel design on his hat, he's the general. Even he is uncomfortable with his role. Um, He's not so convinced that the war effort is necessary or uh, defendable. He, uh, he understands he has a role he has to play. He's an obligation he has to play, or a role he has to play in warfare, but he's not convinced by it. 
nobody in this story seems as convinced by the necessity for the uh, for the conflict. And I think maybe some of that has to do with the time that it has passed, that this this war has been taking place for as long as this, you know, I mean, obviously this is maybe uh, 10 or 12 years after the initial storyline. So this to me seems like how wars end. Uh, they don't end with any, oftentimes don't end with any clear victor. Generally, when wars end, they end with a a bunch of people are forced to accept losses. They're supposed to, they're they're forced to compromise. There's, you know, uh, everybody walks away disappointed, sort of thing. And that's the sense I get from this overall, thematically speaking. Well, and I think that's what gives it the resonance. So that's obviously what happened. I shouldn't say obvious because I had to do a little brushing up on this. But as I remember, this is what happened at the end of the Yugoslav Wars, is that essentially everyone just kind of landed with where they were, with the territory they had won, and and just had to be ultimately dissatisfied that, that their need for the lust for revenge, this passion for a land, this need for independence had to be kind of sacrificed to the reality of just needing to live in a society that was functioning, that wasn't going to... I mean, what what suffuses this story as much as anything is this weird combination of exhaustion and hope. Right. Yeah, that's excellent. Yeah. Because the characters all seem very tired of everything that's happened. They're tired of being part of this larger struggle. But yet there's some happiness, too. There's the young couple who have the very sweet romance, which, of course, ends in the death of one of them. Uh, and, and there is the, the symbolism of the baby and the mother and the baby leaving at the very end of the story into the morning sunshine. But even what's just as striking about this is in part four, around page 153, we have what looks to be the Lord of the Rings battle. Yes. Right? Massive armies facing each other. They're, they've got flying weapons. They've got guns, tanks, horses, everything. You, you've got this image on 154 of you know the man on the horse charging, and you just feel like this is going to be Lord of the Rings, right? And right. instead, it just kind of peters out. They, they, they right. want to fight, but they just don't quite have it. And when the leader is cut down at the knees, very symbolically also, later executed, um, there's this feeling of we a feeling of them stamping out this fire before it caught everybody in its conflagration. And I thought that really showed some resonance because it's, they're, they're not just drawing this story from their own minds. They're drawing it from real life. And it stands out from the rest of the Grendel tales and stands out from the rest of Wagner's Grendel stories too in that there is a feeling of resolution and if not peace, at least a positive feeling moving ahead, a next step that's not so full of despair. And I think that's part of why it resonates so much for me. 
there's some interesting echoes of the first storyline structurally. I, um, you know, I mean, it again opens with a platoon in the countryside under attack, you know, bloodletting. Uh, you know, there's there's some it, it, it opens with, you know, like this is going to be another, you know, action packed war story. And then on page five, he gets uh, uh, Goran gets the call and he said, you know, after they've had the scuffle, uh, the person on the other end of the call says, Goran, you know, the war is over. They signed the truce. It's over. You know, so you're you're led to believe this is going to be a continuation of the war, but by page five, the war is over. Well, what do we do now? And there's just that sense of everybody sort of cut adrift. And the whole meaning of their lives and everything that they've been working toward for most of their adult lives, especially for uh, Igor, the uh, Igor, Igor, the Igor, the general, the young boy who <laughs> killed his father and became the general, uh, you know, especially him. Um, he, right, because there's a note in there that Igor had made alliances with all, with basically every other group, to the point where right. like there's a implication he tried everyone and could never find anyone satisfying enough to be partners with. So now what? I guess it's just time to <laughs> just call it over and done with. He seems so downcast by the news. He's yeah. he's the look. It's, he doesn't even want to hear it. On page eighty-one, he's like putting his hands over his ears. You know, he doesn't even want to hear it that the war is over. He doesn't want to acknowledge it. It's like everything has been taken away from him. And, you know, on pages 82 and 83, one of his, one of the fellow Grendels shows up and the the way that they're, the way that Bakovich has drawn them sort of arm in arm, they almost look like they're a couple of, like they just walked out of the pub or something, you know, Yeah. that they're just, there's this sense of just like defeat and, and, um, uh, what's the word? Uh, just resignation in their bodies. They're the way that they, these characters are drawn by Bukovich. Their their body language just just shouts resignation. Yeah, and, right. And they're just going to be drinking buddies instead of being enemies. Right. Right. Exactly. And um, they'll get together and tell each other war stories for the rest of their lives, and. <laughs> There'll always be a little bit of tension between them, but gosh, sure. in a way, it's not that resonates with the previous story too, right? This is you get older, you slow down, you don't need that kind of shit in your life anymore. Eventually, right. you just want to feel more comfortable. Well, and that's like the general on the other side, who I re- referenced, the one with the the Grendel on his hat, you know, on his uh, beret. Um, you know, he's an older guy and and he knows wars come and go. And, you know, he's he's pretty uh, realistic about it. He doesn't really have the, the, the sentiment of a young man anymore. You know, mm-hmm. the, he, everything is practical to him. And even the, the way that he talks with Goran at the end and how he wants to, you know, enlist him because he's a man of the people and and he'll do so well and, and being this figurehead and. And, you know, Goran is like, leadership sucks, you know, because he's seen what it's done to, to to Igor, you know, it's, it's, there's no glory in it, right? And he's like, well, you know, the alternative is chaos. Mm-hmm. And it's, and that stinks even worse. <laughs> right. So, you know, like with Igor, I mean, he, 
that he can't accept this, the war is over. I mean, that that's this whole follow through in this story, because by the end, when he's making that charge, that last desperate charge, like, uh, you know, Viggo Mortensen's character, in, uh, <laughs> the return of the king. And he's, you know, the, actually a really beautiful illustration of him on page 154 on horseback. And yeah, uh, yeah that's what make, I was mentioning earlier, right? And, you charge. wanted to be Go Mortensen, but instead, it just isn't. Right, and then G Goron comes flying in and and essentially knocks him off of his horse. You know, knocks him down from his high off his high horse, and brings him back down to earth. And, and then there's that he has that backup plan. Igor does. If I don't win, he's got one guy. He's are he's got this like a. Uh, uh, explosive that he's supposed to set off and he's he's standing in the crowd of people of all of these people that he knows you know like men women and children and he's supposed to detonate this thing like you know like this enormous suicide that you know igor would rather everyone die than admit defeat and he can't do it he can't bring himself to do it the, no. this the whole meaning of it has gone out the window it's meaningless now all the glory all of the you know power fame whatever it is that they were hoping to achieve it can't be achieved there's a senselessness to it and he doesn't see the sense in you know committing suicide and killing all of these other innocent people and then there's that amazing um couple of on page 160 where he's going one two and he's he can't do it and then there's a couple of silent panels there's a father standing there with his son who's you know this young boy who looks really angry and then you know, there's people milling around about just a silent panel. And then one of the um, one of the soldiers from the from the uh, army that they were hoping to defeat clips the detonation device and just says pathetic. Yeah. Yeah. But it's not it, pathetic. It's right. Not pathetic. It's the opposite of pathetic. It's the bravest thing you can imagine to say. I have the right. power to either continue this war or stop it right here, and I'm going to choose to walk away. How heroic is that? Absolutely. Well, that's what, you know. I, so much power, I, right? And it just, it, it, right. it, it's so meaningful in such a small sequence, too. And I think that's part of what makes this book so, this story so satisfying, is it's full of different sequences that are yes. really powerful. The, well, I, I think one of the main themes here is that you have to, you know, it, you don't always achieve what you set out to achieve. And sometimes that's for the best. And and in order to continue to exist and in order to move forward, sometimes you have to let go of pride. You have to let go of like at the end uh, with with Goron in that that last sequence where he's now leading the troops and uh, he the 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 mother of the soldier you know at the beginning who defected um who was who you know he he obviously ended up being hung from those uh posts with the three right. skulls and we didn't talk about that but there's that there's that sort of image of the three uh, heads on the posts that gets repeated through these two storylines. And, uh, you know, Igor has gotten his retribution by 
you know, uh, killing him and, and putting him up. There's something actually carved into his chest and I couldn't make out what it said. Uh, and I don't know if it was something that was in Croatian uh, that meant something. I meant to look it up, but it's almost says like P-I-Z-D-A. And I don't know if that means something or if that had some specific reference to the Serbian Croatian war that took place. But nevertheless, uh, she shows up to want to talk to the general, General Gorin, at the end, and huh. presents Russian. Oh, for, okay. For uh, pussy, like uh, we might you say, go. what a pussy. There you uh, go. So she shows up to speak to Gorin and gives. It, I, I see. It's a term. It's a term of abuse, especially for women. So it might be a double curse. Okay. So they're going, sorry. Well, at the end, I mean, there's, there's a sense of hope, but it's mixed with resignation. Yeah. And, and, uh, and that, you know, where she comes to present the, the sword, uh, from his family to Gorin and says, I, I'm giving this to you because I don't want my baby to inherit this. I don't want my baby to inherit this sickness of war. I don't want it to pass on to the next generation. Kind of like what happened with Gorin, with his older brother, and how he sort of, uh, uh, you know, assumed the mantle of his of his older brother, who you know committed suicide in the first story. And she says, "I don't want him to become a warrior." He says, "There won't be any new wars." And she says, "Probably, you know, for a couple of years." And by then. He'll be growing up and another war will come along and mm-hmm. he'll be, you know, to. And, yeah, uh, that, was that striking? That was really interesting, too, especially if you read it in the geopolitical time frame it was written. This, everyone was so cynical about the, the war that they had just been part of that they couldn't imagine a world without the war. Now, of course, 25 years later, I, as far as I know, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Nothing has happened there. I mean, I've had, like we were talking last time, I've had friends grow to, go to Croatia, Croatia on vacation and say it's a wonderful place to go. So, um, of course, we're talking, I'm applying right. a fictional world to a non-fictional world. I want to go back to something you said a little bit ago, which is, oh, I, I don't... I, let, I, me, okay. let me, before you go there, I just want to say there's that last uh, quote yeah, and, please. Uh, where he said, "Maker, uh, he he left a car for you, you know, Antwerpen, the the general, and he said he he let the you know the grizzled general who's you know uh, that we spoke about who's a total realist and um, uh, about things, and you know, in fact, when she says another war will come along, Goran's like sort of chuckles to himself. Well, Antwerpen was right, you know." Uh, um, and he sees because he's seen the wars come and go, right? And and to him, it's just another battle. There's no glory involved, you know. And he leaves the jeep uh, for the young woman, and um, he quotes Antwerpen. Uh, Goran quotes Antwerpen as saying, "Yeah, make or take it. Swallowing some pride is always better than tending to baby's frostbite." And she says yes. And then there's that last um, panel with the sunlight, you know, of course, breaking through the clouds 
uh, and and that idea, you know, that almost cliched symbol of the storm clouds are parting and the sunlight, you know, is shining again and there's hope on the horizon sort of thing. But it's not done in an overhanded kind of way. It's actually a beautiful, uh, beautifully rendered image, I think. And um, it's subtle, you know, but but that last quote, swallowing some by, uh, pride is always better to te than tending to baby's frostbite. You know, in other words, sometimes you have to, in order to move on, you have to let go of things. Right. That, that, were, that were important to you. Getting you're getting to what I was yeah. going to talk about very elegantly. So uh, there's a lot in this book about people having ambitions or making plans or thinking about the future, and then having to adjust those plans as life and reality change. There's the romance with Marika, for example, which is kind of one of the one of the two hearts of the book. The the romance with Marika and the the sequences with the baby, I think, are the two real hearts of the book and show, you know, a, a generational element that really befits it. Um, where you have impulses, you have your, your drives, you have the things that you want to do, but they never quite turn out the way you want them to. When the, when the young couple is on guard duty, and you have sex with each other as was inevitable, you know, because that's what you do. By the way, the worst symbolism ever on page 118 where um, they're having sex in the woods and the pine tree is, you know, a, a stiff member there. <laughs> the forest. Yeah, he's got a, a, a big wood there. Yeah, there's even a small tree there, I think, uh, which could be as his balls but anyway okay yeah. fine we get that they fuck <laughs> by the way she's topless in the next issue anyway here, here's this couple that's up to be kind of this sweet kind of moment of happiness in the middle of everything and within a few pages they discover that there's no way that they're they can avoid being dragged into it in some ways they're complicit because they're only thinking of themselves with the with the war and the devastation, everything else that's going on. So even something as simple as kind of meeting someone and feeling attracted to them is compromised by the society you live in. And, you know, okay, it is very symbolic with, on page 128, with a half-eaten apple at the bottom of the tree in the middle of this beautiful forest. But there is a little bit of a kind of I don't want to say it's a fall from grace, but a fall from happiness, a fall from joy, a fall from innocence is not a bad idea there. It, it's, it's a moment of transition from a kind of childhood to a kind of adulthood. That's what makes that them in particular just such an interesting couple. Yeah, of course, that half-eaten apple is as Bakovich likes to do, his uh, composition is echoed on the following page by a man who's bloodied corpse <laughs> tied with ropes going from this moment of, I guess, peace to this moment of a different kind of peace. Peace and death. Yeah, it's a powerful comic. It's Obviously, it's to me, it's the best one in the 
in this book. <laughs> Easily stands tall above the others. Was there anything else you wanted to say about it before we transition to the um, Devil May Care? Well, one last thing, which is you're looking at the print book, right? Yes. So I have it on Kindle. And on Kindle, you okay. can see multiple pages all at once. Like, oh, yeah. uh, you could see 16 pages on, in thumbnail view. And seeing it in that view gives you a chance to see how we compose the pages. It's an interesting experience because Bukovich clearly thinks through his pages as systemic units. So we'll have characters static and then move the camera in and out, the metaphorical camera in and out, or put characters in shadow and then have them be fully drawn, or we'll draw a character in close distance and then gradually move them out to long distance. And so by looking in this view, you really get a sense of his storytelling skills and really how he's thinking through the page as an organic unit. And it's fascinating to see because the other the other artists do in this book do that to some extent. I mean, there's a there's a few really nice scenes that Doherty does in The Devil May Care, for example. But you really see Bukovich working what you talked about a lot last time, which was his juxtapositions, the way he moves his metaphorical camera through the pages. And you could see kind of the quality of work he's producing here, which it just gives it another level of intrigue to me. Absolutely. I, you know, on page 130, 131, for example, he has two pages facing each other with the same a panel layout, uh, same mm -hmm. size panels, exactly mirrored. And it's almost done in a way to express the in, entrapment that the characters are experiencing. Not only the character who's being uh, tortured in this, our characters who are being tortured on these two pages, but also the torturers, that they're following these this kind of rigid code that they, they mm -hmm. can't really out of and he's done that in a way he's expressed that in a way by repeating the same panel layout like this is just this is how it's done and you know uh, it's by the book it's really interesting i mean that's, I'm, that's just one example but um i mean we could go on and on there's countless examples of that yeah he does one 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 thing he likes to do is a full page uh splash page but he he places uh, other panels on top of the splash page. Uh, you know, it's a common thing that some comic artists like to do, but he always does it in such a way that whatever's taking place uh, on that splash page, whatever panels he's placed within that splash page, they interrelate to the splash in a really interesting way. I would comment on the splash itself, but also comments on the panels or there's some uh, there's some relationship between the panel and the splash page that it's really uh, original like I've never seen anybody do it before like on page 105 there's a, a splash where there's the ruins of of this uh, building have created this arch and then there's a panel above it where the bird is taking flight and it's probably where the bird is in relationship to the ruins but it's also a panel unto itself and mm -hmm. it's and it's placed between Igor uh, raising a gun and then unexpectedly shooting that other uh, 
Grendel clan leader in the head who he was buddying up with a few pages previous. And well, then, the you know, the circle arch is then you can't it's hard to see in the printed page. But when you look at it in, in the long view, it's echoed on the very next page and in that inset panel on the right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's just so it is a master class in storytelling. I said you're right. I well, I mentioned that before. It was like I think if they're teaching comics storytelling and what you can can and can't do with comics, this these Grendel tales by Bakovich would be an excellent classroom tool. Yeah, because there's just much in the only the only thing you can do with comics language, which is specific to comics themselves. I think the things that Will Eisner does or the things that Dave Sim does, you can't do that in any other medium. And some comic artists are always willing to experiment. And it's not like you said, like with the tree, the enormous tree that could, you know, it's a little on the note. So, you know, it's not always successful. But the point is that he does it. He tries it. He tries it out. And most of the time it's, absolutely compelling and electrifying comic storytelling. I think Peter Doherty and Terry LeBan do a fine job in Devil May Care. It's not my favorite story at, at all of a Grendel story, but he does a fine job. It's just that the story suffers in comparison. Okay, the, the storyline around the Indianapolis 500 and the Grendels is a little kind of, I don't know, it, it feels uncomfortable and a little weird. The, but Doherty does a fine job with his storytelling. On page 181 of the book, for example, the silent scenes of fighting are just very nicely done. He's very good at drawing characters, pulling out the the way that Hack and Dana are feeling throughout the story. And you know, they, these are characters who really come alive. Um, the the so I should say Hack is a local Grendel leader in Indianapolis who's one of the chieftains of the future version of the Indianapolis 5000 race. Um, and Dana's a doctor in the one and only local hospital who's also dealing with a, her son wanting to become a Grendel and her trying to stop him. So it's very much a Romeo and Juliet story as Hack and Dana kind of find themselves falling in love and finding that love destroying their relationships, both in their family and in their professional lives. This is one of those stories, honestly, Eric, that if you took away the racing aspect of it and the Grendel aspect of it, I think the story would be better. Yeah. If you just had an ordinary doctor falling in love with someone who has some sort of compromise in his life and trying to keep her son from becoming part of that life, I think it's just a very strong story. The Grendel piece is almost extraneous, and the battles around the Indianapolis 500 are just too much. There's a core of a great story here, though. Yeah, I agree. I agree. This is not the Love Conquers All version. No. <laughs> so, you um, know, going into it, love is not going to conquer all. So, this is a six parter. It right. feels a little long at six parts also. Yes, we know, we know love is not going to conquer all. We know there's going to be a lot of vengeance. We know the city of Indianapolis is going to basically fall apart. Right. But we also, 
I, I don't feel like I wanted this couple to succeed in the same way I wanted other couples to succeed because I never quite got what they felt for each other other than their differences. They never had a future. Well, opposites attract, though, right? Sure. I thought it was showing a lot of its Terry LeBon in its dialogue. So he's pretty good at dialogue, Terry LeBon. It never feels, it, it feels very naturalistic. Mm-hmm. Uh, the relationship feels very naturalistic. The setting feels completely jarring. As you said, extraneous to what's taking place. And in some cases, you know, like when they're going out to eat at a classy restaurant, it's almost like, you know, it doesn't fit the world. This happens occasionally with Grendel comics where there's something. I think we talked about that one one parter, which was the initial Grendel tale. It takes you out of the story. It's discordant. Yeah. Discordant. Yeah. And. Every time you, I felt myself starting to get drawn in by this relationship, and there are, you know, like I said, Laban's good with dialogue, and I, I guess I was a little more convinced by the relationship than you were, but that something would come along that would just completely take me out of it. Yeah, it's it's padded. It could easily have been done in, I don't know, three or four issues, maybe, tops. A good, strong story. Yeah, it's derivative a bit of Shakespeare, but what isn't, right? Um, it's a, it's not a negative to say something's derivative of Shakespeare, right? <laughs> right? It's a compliment to say something is Shakespearean, although the ending is very kind of... Romeo and Juliet is a perfect comparison because yeah. it is the ending of Romeo and Juliet, right? Yeah, uh, okay, so that that part of it is overt, okay. I I applaud them for their ambition here yeah to to introduce sort of a compelling naturalistic relationship into this world it's not necessarily a bad thing i mean that's what bakovich and mccann were doing in their stories right they were introducing realistic naturalistic dialogue and relationships into this world that wagner has created but they did it in a way that um not only complemented the Grendel world, but transcended it. This yeah. this doesn't seem to do either. There's a lot of elements to it that I like very much, though. I, I like Dana's character. I like that a woman who's obviously in her 40s, who's accomplished something in her life, is given a lead role in a story like this. It's not about someone young taking on some sort of mantle. And she's certainly a person who is truly herself, who's accomplished a tremendous amount in her life, and who appreciates the moral dilemma she's in. Yeah, she's a so strong. I, I think this character, friend. as a character, would be a great character to, to center a story around. Absolutely. She's a strong woman. She's, you know, comfortable with her sexuality. She's, she's a, like the idea of the liberated woman, right? She's mm-hmm. she's an accomplished woman. She's comfortable with herself. She's confident. She takes command. You can see why she's in charge of a hospital. Okay, Laban makes that entirely believable. 
that she would be a woman in that position. Grendel, uh, general character. He just, I, I can see where you're saying that their relationship isn't convincing in a way, but I can kind of see it. He's, he's a bad boy. He's tall, dark, and handsome. You know, I mean, she's a woman. She, she has needs. <laughs> I, I can yeah. see it. I, I, on the other hand, I can also sort of say, well, she maybe, well, in a way it complicates her character in a way that's maybe more, more realistic than not. Fair. But at the same time, at the same time, I kind of agree with you in the sense that I would think or I would hope that somebody of, uh, you know, her obviously level of confidence and, and intelligence would maybe not get involved with this guy. You know what I mean? I mean, it's the fuel that, fu- that drives the whole story. So I, right. I can't say it's wrong for them to be together. And uh, the relationship is strong. It's intriguing. It doesn't make sense when they're in the restaurant together. But I don't oh, know. Yeah. Animal attraction kind of thing, I think, in a way. There's also the level of hypocrisy with her trying to prevent her son, Albert, from joining his own, his clan, you know, uh, it shows her moral compromise that she lives with, which is actually also feels very realistic. It does because they're pure. You would think that somebody in her position of power has had to, has has probably used it to her own advantage from time to time, as anyone would, you know, or or in climbing the ladder that she didn't step on a few heads. That sort of thing. So in a way, it's kind of believable that she would take advantage of a situation where it where it suited her purposes. I also think it's kind of cute how Hack fantasizes about her and having it be a normal relationship. He's so desperate to not have someone who he, women who he can literally throw over his shoulder and have sex with. He wants someone who can actually talk to him. Yes. He's, it shows like this need for humanity and it strikes me that okay we just read the the uh actually no let me put it this way again three of the four stories out of this book have normal human conversations as key elements to them right have a actual human connection as part of them and maybe that's part of what makes this romance work is that they're so different but they can still relate to each other on some level because they feel the weight of the world on their shoulders and they just want something that's outside of this world they feel trapped in right she because she's trapped in in her role as the doctor who feels like she has to save the whole society right it's a little bit like the old tv show mash or something where you know the doctors just feel like they're the only ones preventing preventing the utter destruction of the people come through their wards. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting point. I mean, again, like in Devil's Choices, which, you know, I draw attention to the title, Choices. Yeah. Once the war is taken away, now people are faced with choices where when the war was taking place, they were their roles were pretty rigidly defined. Right. But then once the war was over, now i guess agency takes over like this is 
now you now you're able to make your own decisions. Now is where you show your moral compass, or you know, you this is where your your true self starts to come out, right? In the decisions that you make, and and in this story, they're kind of the same theme taking place in the sense that both of these characters want to break out of these rigidly defined roles that they're playing and and both of them are you know have both she and he have enormous responsibilities in their own way i mean sure his is has to do with chaos and destruction and hers has to do with preserving some modicum of order in this world that you know she's in but they're both sort of trying to get away from those things and and in a way i think they both really genuinely dislike their lives um yeah they're both very unhappy people and that unhappiness is also another piece of glue that holds them together well and the the, the tragedy here is that of all the people that they could have broken out with they chose somebody else whose role is unbreakable right and that's the tragedy that they can't get out of it and then i guess that's where the romeo and juliet you know, uh, comes into play in the sense that um, they're sort of expected to be these people. Um, right. Well, and and what a dark, just sad ending. First, Hack kills Dana's son, and then Dana kills Hack and herself, gone to the head. I mean, this is just a devastating super dark ending yes (laughs) like this this is a throw yourself off a bridge kind of ending yeah it's kind of reminded me of the ending to the film adaptation of the mist where it was just like this is just nihilistic (laughs) yeah the nihilism really comes through yeah and then we get to Devil's Apprentice by Jeffrey Lang and Steve Lieber with yeah. coloring by Bernie Moreau again. Oh, sorry. I want to say one more thing about this story, which is that the artist here, Peter Doherty, I'm not real familiar with his work, but his artwork here is really good. It's very resonant. There's a variety of storytelling elements here. He's very good at drawing character. Uh, the world that he draws is also kind of dark, desiccated, destroyed in a lot of ways. You know, it's only the fact that this story is collected with two other outstanding comics stories that makes it suffer. I think if it had stu- if it, this had been volume one, I think we might have liked it a little bit more. This this is my least, uh, I, I probably my least favorite Grendel tales, other than uh maybe the uh first story in the first volume of Grendel Tales um which was four devils one hell Th- this is another story that well we've we've mentioned how uh some storylines are some some stories can be faithfully wedded to Wagner's Grendel mythos and this to me just seems like 
the uh, author had um much like james robinson with four devils one hell he had the seeds of a bunch of different stories maybe that he wanted to do this opportunity came along to do a grendel uh tales miniseries he took trips and drabs of different plots that he had sort of mashed them all together sprinkled in a little grendel themes you know and 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 almost like a paint by numbers sort of thing and came yeah. up with I, I didn't feel like it was a very compelling story even without it being a grendel story um okay i i, I thought it kind of failed across the board i didn't find the characters compelling i wasn't really interested in the story too much the artwork is you know it's serviceable it's sufficient i so the newest it, bit of work i could find by dirty was from 2003 pencil or inking work he did a lot of coloring and other co coloring and lettering he was the colorist on Sholin cowboy but his most yeah. recent stories where he did art uh date to the early 2000s specifically like he did a lot of work for judge dread and okay. other 2080 strips so let's move ahead to the, the story we'll... that to the I'm final sorry. story here which i think is also not one we need to spend a lot of time on devil's apprentice by jeffrey lang and steve lieber with coloring by bernie moreau uh, it's a futuristic Western. It's fine and dandy. It's nothing really worth dwelling too, too long on to me. It's well done. It's an interesting enough story, but it's not a world I feel like I need to revisit again. I thought the Western setting was interesting. You know, the use of the Western motifs was intriguing. But not anything more than that. There no, is a bit of family stuff in here as well, though, because uh, there is. You could talk about that a little bit, I think. Yeah, I mean, the Western setting is interesting, I guess. Uh, it's not nearly as interesting as, and and it doesn't seem to get what you associate with Westerns. You don't seem to get that here. I always think of Akura Kurosawa with the Seven Samurai. Have you seen that? It's on my list. Okay. Well, it is one of the greatest movies ever made. I know that. Yeah. So, and it, it legitimately, I mean, you watch it and you go, yeah, that's one of the greatest movies ever made. Right. So, and it was remade as a Western, but Kurosawa, when he made Seven Samurai, and it's a samurai film, he borrowed liberally from the visual the the visual motifs of hollywood westerns camera setups editing building up suspense how they did you know how they would do that in westerns how they build up suspense with those you know the the, the payoff and everything so it's a samurai film but it's basically a western now that's an excellent example of taking something like a western and building upon it or comp commenting on it in some way this just seems to be like well we'll just take a western we'll throw in some vampires and we'll see what happens baby <laughs> you know uh -huh. i mean there didn't seem to be too much uh originality there didn't seem to be too much 
real I didn't feel any real enthusiasm for the Western. I didn't feel like it really did anything with the whole Western setting that builds on it in any way or or even with the vampires. You know well, what I was what I was alluding to is our protagonist Aaron has a vampiric blood in him due to his father ends up having to kill his father in the end. And I thought that was just one of the many elements of the story that should have so much promise just but just doesn't really work. Right. You just don't don't feel it like it it paid off in any strong way. You're not really made to feel much empathy for the characters. Yeah, you feel a little outside the characters. Yeah, right. Right. And I think part of that is at this point in his career, Steve Lieber just wasn't as talented, not talented, but as strong an artist as he would later become. Because I mean, now now Lieber could easily pull off a story like this. Now you would probably do it very differently. Right. I mean, just look at his like his Spider-Man work is so much more interesting than this work. Yeah, it's it it it's very flat. Yeah. I mean, the whole effect, affect of it is flat. It's, it's like I said, it's almost like um, paint by numbers Grendel in a way. Uh, in in the first uh, Grendel Tales volume, the the Devil's Hammer, where it took the the medieval setting, and it did something interesting with it, you know, and something original and unique. And this takes the Western setting and just doesn't. Okay, so it's a Western. So what, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, you know, this, yeah, this one is, it, I, when we were rereading this, I honestly, I just sort of flipped through it. I, re, I read a little bit of it. I'm more, I, I more looked at the, the pictures this time. I knew the storyline from the time I had read it before. And I was trying to see if there was anything that I missed the first time around that maybe would make it more, uh, that would redeem it a little bit more and you know i i really couldn't find much of anything <laughs> so lang as far as i can tell based on grand comics database wrote altogether seven or eight comic stories this is the only thing longer than a kind of a fill-in story that he ever did yeah 16 pager in in the old caliber press book back in 1990. So this is by far the longest thing he ever wrote. And I think he just, we're seeing early work by a creator who just didn't get a chance to refine himself the way he needed to in order to create, to deliver a story like this. There's a lot of things that seem like they could pay off in a stronger creator's hands, but it just doesn't quite work. And that's fine. I mean, all right, we got... Two great stories in this book. I think one very good story and one story that was just disappointing. Still is a good percentage. Let me ask you, of all these Grendel tales, the ones that used vampires as a plot device, were any of them memorable? No. Right. I don't think so. Yeah, it it seems to me that, and I don't know if that's, I don't know if that's by design or by choice or what, but it seems to me that the creators uh, who were 
talented enough to look at Wagner's Rendell and draw from it the things that they wanted to use. Most of them wisely chose not to involve vampires. And I've said previously in a in previous episodes we were talking about the whole vampire aspect of Grendel, how I, I always felt like he could have used something else. You know, he could have used some other thing. I mean, even though Argent, for example, is a werewolf, he's not like what you think of as a werewolf, right? He's not a guy who turns into a wolf when, at the full moon or anything like that. He's he's a, a Native American Algonquin Indian variant on the werewolf, which is interesting in and of itself, right? And But the vampire thing always seemed to me kind of like lazy on Wagner's part. Like, isn't there something else that he could have done? Even the Grendel drug could have been used to, you know, be that destructive force. I don't think he needed vampires, really. And I don't think any of the storylines that are really, truly memorable that have come out of Grendel have relied on vampires really at all. I can't think of any. No, the closest we get is the Jupiter Asante storyline, but the vampires are kind of on the side there. Right, right. But again, there's nothing about them that needs them to be vampires in that mm-hmm. sense. you know it could have been a disease or a virus or something else yeah i agree with that right so let's let's sum up so we read 2000 or so pages of grendel stories right which uh i'm extremely happy about by the way let me ask a pretty obvious question because it's been 2,000 pages, maybe 15 or 18 different storylines. What's the one you enjoyed the most, and what's the one you enjoyed the least out of those storylines? Let's start with with your favorite, then we'll do my favorite, and then we'll do your least favorite. Mm, That's tough. Um, Really, I think the the Bukovic, McCann, the two storylines that they did would, would tie for my favorites. Because of the quality of the storytelling and the characters? Everything about it. Devils and Deaths, Devil's Choices. The writing is is solid, interesting. The, the artwork is extraordinary. They take all of the things that are interesting about Grendel, well, at least the futuristic portion of Grendel, and really complement it in a way, and yet do something incredibly original with it. Like I said, it's complementary of Grendel, but also transcends Grendel as well. It's something that you can read you, without reading anything else of Grendel. You can still read those and comprehend what's going on and get something out of it. Whereas pretty much everything else kind of sort of needs a little bit of background in Grendel in a way to help it along. But those two just sort of stand on their own two feet and are their own thing and i think they're kind of like the that jewel um all the time and pressure and heat of grendel produced that that diamond of uh mccann and bakovich's two stories yeah yeah and i have to agree with that i specifically say devils and deaths because of the the straight more straightforward nature of it It, yeah it's it's just such a gem of a story and the storytelling elements are so strong in it I think that it really is. I that that's probably my favorite as well. 
that so out of all of them, what's the one that you enjoyed the least? Not that you thought was the worst, but enjoyed the least. Enjoyed the least? I, I you know, it's an easy answer, but I would have to say probably Devil's Apprentice. It just the one that we just spoke about. It just didn't. Nothing about it is memorable. Uh, it was a slog to get through. Uh, you know, at least with all of the other Grendel storylines, and that includes the original series and all of the uh, work that Wagner has done after these, you know, with the, going back to Hunter Rose and all the crossovers, everything, the whole body of work. Everything seems to have something about it that's of value. It either the artwork or the writing or even just a moment or two that redeems it. But that there's just nothing redeemable as just it's just completely unmemorable. It's not it's not bad, you know. It's like the you know, like Mystery Science Theater or Rift Tracks. Mm -hmm. There's certain movies that are bad that they just can't do because they're just so boring. There's no opportunity for them to, there's nothing distinguishing about it. And that's the worst. I'm one of those people, like I grew up in the 80s, right? I I have a healthy sense of kitsch and, and, you know, I've seen all the John Waters movies and everything. I know that some bad things can be of value because they can, you know, there's that, that element to it that, that you know there's something about it that's interesting at least but i just didn't find anything interesting about it at all yeah i don't think it was i i i wasn't bothered by it though i have to say i think the the incubation years which is what grendel 23 through 26 or something those stories were they felt like they were trying hard to do something different but each one fell short in a different way. They were just off-putting, frustrating, tough, tough to get through. They were unfriendly as a reader. Now I get that Grendel, uh, that that Wagner and his team were trying to do something different. They were playing with some different ideas, and they were there was innovation that they were trying to do on the comic page, but none of it really worked the way they hoped it would. It just all kind of fell a little, not flat as much as, I don't want to read, I, I felt like I did, it, it's 30-year-old dated experiments that just didn't quite work anymore. You know, that, that were, the, and in the end, I felt like they were extraneous too. There's some decent ideas in them, but I found myself just really anxious to get on with those. I, I didn't. I didn't enjoy them nearly as much as I wanted to. I'll also say that uh, you know a lot of the second half of Grendel, the original Wagner series, is tough to get through. All the stuff with the multiple storylines, right? Uh, especially the stuff with the long text articles. I just found it challenging. Again, in a way that I didn't feel like I needed to. And. You know, especially the, I guess that's the Jupiter Asante storylines we were talking about. And it's not necessarily, no, I'll just say it. I just, I, I found him to be a lot more work than they needed to be to get through. I was, at, I, I felt like my opinion of Wagner's work on Grendel, revisiting now after the, for the first time in many years, 
dropped a little bit based on what I read in these stories. Uh, I thought the Christine Spar storyline, for example, was just missing its guts. It was missing the narrative fuel it needed to have. And I thought the so yeah, I mean they all had flaws in their own ways. I don't need to dwell on all that. Whereas at least the Grendel Tales stories were felt a little freer from the continuity and felt like they were they were the creators were able to explore the world in a different way. I felt like Wagner kind of trapped himself in some ways mm-hmm. by building up this large continuity. I wish he was free to create his own Grendel Tales and do his tell his own story that was on the side because you know he's a magnificent cartoonist i think he would have done a brilliant job with that i think the ambition aspect of it and the experimentalism aspect of it got in the way of the storytelling a lot of the times i can appreciate the ambition even the incubation years that you so disliked i can still see I still applaud the fact that they were trying to do something different and not something, you know, paint by numbers or sort of just kind of straightforward. Sometimes when you're trying to do something so different, it ends up it ends up getting in the way of what it is that you want to do. And, you know, it's, I guess, a kind of Zen thing, right? Get out of your own way. Right. Mm-hmm. And. Uh, that's when the magic happens, right? When you're not trying so damn hard, you know. And I think that, like, it's interesting. He was doing Mage at the same time as that initial Grendel, you know, the Christine Spar. And Mage was so different, and so much heart in that, and so much feeling, and and the characters were so compelling, and and they felt like friends, kind of thing. And uh, and then Grendel was just kind of cold and distant, and you know, it just didn't seem to be as he was it almost seemed like it was a different writer so eric would you say it's heart versus head yeah heart versus head but but then he manages once he gets past all of that world building and then he's finally got this he's already done all the work and he's got the playground right now he did he did manage manage to do at least one arc where the heart and the head were in perfect balance. And that was War Child. I was going to say War Child is probably my second favorite of all the arcs. Right. Maybe even better than the four-parter we just discussed by the Croatian artist, because it really tells a, journey, it tells a story on multiple levels. Maybe this is just Wagner needing to grow up a little more. Yeah. Yeah, so if... I- I really enjoyed reading all these with you. Oh yeah, it's it's been a blast. It's absolutely been a blast. Thank you for taking me up on it. When I proposed this, I guess I didn't realize in a way what we were getting into. <laughs> <laughs> but that's okay. I mean, it, we got some great stuff out of it. It's great talking about the these comics again and rereading them and what an interesting uh, time for comics in the 80s and 90s. And I think Grendel sort of perfectly captures the highs and lows of that period, that time period. Oh, thank you.